Good morning, everyone. Thanks for letting me get to do this this morning. I was thinking about of all the things that I could be spending my time doing, there are a few things I would rather do than this, and I, I mean that sincerely. I love this opportunity. If you have a Bible, please turn to Ephesians 1. If you don't, don't worry, it's going to be projected on the screen. They gave me the chance to pick my passage this morning, which is dangerous. Uh, but I picked a passage that I have been in for a number of weeks now in Ephesians 1. And the more I studied it, it was one of those things where I was starting to wonder, hmm, have I made a mistake here? Because this passage is so deep and good and profound and glorious and amazing that there were multiple times where I found myself wrestling to even articulate all that God is trying to communicate through it. And obviously, I don't really believe I've made a mistake, but that's what I found myself up against as I was preparing it. So I believe God's going to meet us in it. I believe he's going to speak to us. I'm excited to get to dive into it. But before we do, I want to talk about something that's a little bit less profound, but also equally important to me, and that is infomercials. Uh, I realized, now as I was preparing this, I came to a kind of scary realization, and that is that as people my age and younger are cutting the cord when it comes to cable and regular standard television, that infomercials are going away. Uh, And if you are unfamiliar with the word infomercial, I am sorry for you and also glad that you are spared this. But infomercials, there's this thing about them that I just have a weird affection for them. And I think part of it is whenever I watch an infomercial, everybody's just so over-the-top enthusiastic about everything. And so, and there's a formula that they follow. Almost every single one follows this specific formula. First, you've got the pitch man or the pitch woman, and that's the person who's actually doing the selling. So whether it's the cornballer or the Ginsu knives or the set-it-and-forget-it chicken roaster, the pitch man, I mean, he's like all in on this thing. Basically, from how he's speaking and what he's promising you, this is literally the greatest thing since penicillin. Second, in addition to the pitch man, you've got the sidekick. The sidekick has one job, and that is to constantly express disbelief over all the things that this can do. (laughs) So they say things like, wait a second. So what you're telling me is I can take this Ginsu knife, tunnel out of prison through 15 feet of concrete, and then perfectly slice a tomato, (laughs) which is always the standard for knives for some odd reason. Um, And then you have the audience. The audience, they're not always there. Um, I watched... I did my due diligence this week and watched a couple on YouTube. The audience is not always there, but when the audience is there, they are paid to be there. And they are paid to act as if they are sitting at a Cirque du Soleil performance and witnessing the most amazing thing they have ever seen. And then there's a certain part of every infomercial that I have a particular affection for, and that's at the, usually it's toward the end, they're starting to get ready to make the hard sell. And it's when they say, but wait, there's more. It's always there. But wait, there's more. And you know what it is. I mean, if you've ever seen um, 
perhaps what I would say is one of the dumbest inventions of all time, the Chia Pet. It'll be like, the chi- not only do you get a regular Chia Pet, if you order in the next seven minutes, you also get one shaped like Mick Jagger's head and an Ewok. It's just, there's always some sort of added value thrown in there. And I don't know about you, here's, here's my experience every time I see something, a commercial like this. I find myself thinking, come on. This is too good to be true. This is ridiculous. I mean, what you're telling me is for $9.95, I am getting $7,450 in value, <laughs> plus shipping and handling. And I think, I mean, for me, this is why I get, first, this is why I never buy anything off infomercials. Um, and I always feel a little bit jaded, suspicious. I, I just, I feel like I'm not going to buy this from you. I know what, I can see through what you're doing. What does this have to do with Ephesians 1? The passage we're reading this morning, it feels like a but wait, there's more passage. It starts with an incredible statement and promise, and then it just keeps piling one thing on top of another, on top of another, except when we get to the end, it's all true. It's all true. We can stake our lives on it. It's all rock-solid reality that we can stake our eternity, our happiness, our joy on. You're going to feel like, but wait, there's more, and there is more, and it's all true. So if you're able and willing, would you stand with me? We're going to read from Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. Again, if you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. Paul writes, the Apostle Paul writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Lord, I never feel more inarticulate than when trying to describe these staggering eternal realities. Thankfully, Lord, our confidence, my confidence is not in the specific words I speak, but in your power to open our eyes to see this. So, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, would you please let us see all the glory that's contained in this passage so that we would praise and adore you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. 
Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus, and unlike some of his letters where he basically comes out guns blazing and fists flying, he begins his letter to the Ephesians with an explosion of praise. In the original Greek in which Paul was, he was writing in the Greek language, this passage, 3 through 14, it's one long sentence. It's as if Paul has gotten so caught up in the beauty of what he's writing that he can't pause to take a breath or put in a period. It just pours out of him. And so this passage, he starts, Paul starts all the way, and eternity passed before time began, sweeps through to the present, and finishes an eternity future. And there's one theme song that's running through the whole passage, and that's this. In Christ, we have every spiritual blessing. That's what Paul is hammering home again and again and again. In Christ, we have every spiritual blessing. Not some blessings, not a few blessings, not a little smidge of blessings, but every blessing. Now, let's try to dive into this. Let's try to unpack this a little bit. The first point that Paul makes is he starts talking about how we are blessed in eternity past. Look at verse 3. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. This is the main point Paul's making for this entire section. If you are the kind of person who likes thesis statements, this is his thesis statement. Everything else he's going to say in the next I'm subtracting 14 from 3, 11 verses. Everything he's going to say flows out of this passage, this verse. In Jesus Christ, you and I have every spiritual blessing. In Christ, we have every spiritual blessing. If you have put your hope in Christ, if you have put all your trust in him for for salvation, you are united to Jesus Christ in a mysterious and yet very real way. You are united to Christ, and because of that, all blessings are yours. And as I was studying this, and I was trying to wrestle with the phrase spiritual blessings in heavenly places, it it was hard. It feels a little bit mystical and vague, doesn't it? Like, okay, what exactly are spiritual blessings in the heavenly places? We've been in the book of John, as Josh mentioned, for the last year maybe, and I think the book of John is actually very helpful in helping us understand this. Throughout John, again and again, the phrase eternal life occurs. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. And when Paul, I mean, when Jesus speaks those words, eternal life, The words he's using there literally mean the life of the age to come. Eternal life. We tend to think of eternal life in terms of not going to hell, going to heaven, living for eternity. It's so much bigger than that. So much more glorious than that. There's a time coming when Jesus, the risen Savior, is going to return. He's going to usher in a new age And when he returns, sin will be destroyed. Satan will be destroyed. We'll be given new resurrection bodies that don't get sick. 
We will be freed, completely freed from the power and presence of sin. We will be able to have friendships with one another that aren't marred by sin. We'll have unbroken fellowship with God. We will feast with Jesus. And God himself will dwell in our midst in ways that we can't even fathom right now. And so when Jesus says eternal life, What he means is, when he says you receive eternal life, what he means is we get the life of the age to come and it breaks into the right now. Eternal life, having eternal life is the life of the age to come breaking into the right now. We don't get all of it. It's going to be completed when Christ returns, but we get taste of it now. And we get part of it right now. We get part of that life of the age to come. It breaks into the right here, the right now. Theologians often call this living between the already and the not yet. So when Paul, when he says we have all these spiritual blessings in Christ, I think that's what he has in mind. We have these spiritual blessings that we get tastes of right now and that have broken into our lives right now. And we're going to experience fully when Christ returns. And so after Paul, he opens with this sweeping statement. Then it's like he holds up this, the diamond of our salvation. And he starts to slowly turn it and marvel at each facet of the diamond. And I have to admit, and I think you're probably going to find this too, my brain, as I was trying to wrap my mind, even personally around these things, I felt like my brain was creaking under the strain of it. There's just things here that are so mysterious and yet glorious that we find ourselves bumping up against what we can even fathom. But that's okay. That's okay. These are, these are truths to be explained and explored, but you know what? They're also things that are mysteries just to be savored. Mysteries just to be enjoyed, not knowing fully what they mean, but knowing it's far better than we can imagine. So Paul starts to unpack these mysteries in verse 4. Look at verse 4. He says, Even as he, so he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, Even as he, the Father, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. These verses, they're an unbreakable chain of blessings. And this is the first link. Before we were born, before time began, in eternity past, God chose you to be in Christ. If you have believed in Christ and trusted in Christ, here's why. It's because of this passage. God chose you to be in Christ. It's as if God said, it's as if God was looking down through time, and obviously God is over and above time, so this is where the analogy is going to break down a little bit, but it's as if God was looking down through time and he said, I choose you and I will unite you you to my son. And I'm going to unite you to Christ so closely that when I look at you, I see Jesus. And because you're united so closely to Jesus, his life is your life. And because his life is your life, you can be holy 
and blameless before me. Those words, holy and blameless, they're amazing. Have you ever screwed up so badly that there is absolutely no doubt that you are the one to blame? That's a terrible feeling, right? I mean, you want to get away, you want to hide, you want to blame shift, you want to get out, you just, you feel terrible. Feel ashamed. Now, multiply that crushing sense of shame times infinity when it comes to sinners standing before a holy God. When I think about myself standing in God's presence, I think, how can I possibly stand holy and blameless before God? My sins are so new. You could fill a library of books with my sins written in them. How can I possibly stand before God holy and blameless? And in Isaiah 6, Isaiah the prophet, he goes into the temple and he comes face to face with God. And when he sees God in all his brilliant, blazing holiness, he is so undone and overwhelmed by his sin, his response is he literally calls prophetic curses on himself. Meaning he essentially calls on God to pour out wrath on him because he is so worthy of being punished. And so when I read this, and I see the words holy and blameless, it causes me to stop. This passage says that God chose me, God chose you to be in Christ and to be holy and blameless in Christ. Because I'm joined to Christ, because you're joined to Christ, Christ's sinless life, death, and resurrection, they're yours. They're yours. And so you and I can stand in the presence of a holy God and not a single accusation can be leveled against us. Not a single blame can be laid against us. We can stand before God holy and blameless. Doesn't that blow your mind? That is mind-blowing. Have you ever sinned and felt like, I'm, sh- I'm sure you have. This is, I think, the common experience of many Christians, at least at some point. Have you ever f- sinned and felt like, you know what? That's it. There's no way God can love me at this point. I am just too sinful. And your heart and Satan, they start to tag team. You know, they got you on the ropes, so they start to tag team, and they start hurling accusation and condemnation, and you find yourself sinking into darkness and despair. In those moments, this passage is a light that shines in that piercing, that pierces that darkness. This passage is a light you can hold forth to repel that darkness and to turn back those accusations, because it's not true. You are in, if you are in Christ, no blame or accusation can be leveled against you. Such good news. It's as if God has put his family likeness on me. Think about this with me for a second. Every member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are all perfectly blameless. And so God says, I'm going to give you my family likeness. I'm going to make you holy and blameless. And then because of that, because of that action, then God can adopt me as a son into his family. And this is where it starts to get 
we're, we're getting in the deep end here, but there's a very real sense in which God invites us into the family of the Trinity. Now, let's be clear. We're never gods. We are never equal to God. We do not become God. But there's a real sense where God puts his likeness on us and then invites us into the family through adoption so we can have real fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As you read this, you might think, okay, why is Paul using the word sons? Why doesn't he say sons and daughters? Is this some sort of misogyny on Paul's part? No, it's actually really good news. When Paul was writing, it was the sons who received the inheritance from the father. It was the sons who got to share in the father's wealth. And so when Paul says adoption as sons, what he's saying is God adopts us as sons into his family for the very purpose of being able to let us share in his wealth. The wealthier the father, the bigger the inheritance. Unfortunately, my father's not hugely independently wealthy, so I don't have a big inheritance probably coming my way. Not so with God. Not so with God. We don't, we don't need to worry that this inheritance is going to be some sort of small pittance we're going to receive from God. Your inheritance from God, my inheritance from God, it's coming, here's what it comes out of, the infinite wealth of God. There's no fear that we're somehow going to miss out. There's no fear that we need to like scrabble and fight to get our claim on some of God's wealth. God's wealth is infinite and we get to be part of it. We get to take part in it. If you've ever seen the show Arrested Development, there's a scene where the Bluth family, which is entirely dysfunctional to begin with, the children, long before the parents, the parents are showing no signs of dying, no signs of going anywhere, and yet the children want to make sure they don't miss out on any of the inheritance. So what they start doing is they all grab post-it notes and they start writing their names on the post-it notes and then sticking them under stuff, like uh, sticking them on a big flat screen TV, sticking them under like keepsakes. We don't need to do that with God. We don't need to worry that we're going to miss out on some of God's inheritance for us. God is the one who speaks things into existence. He's the one who owns everything. And honestly, I, I don't even know all of what this inheritance involves that I'm going to get. I don't know all that it involves, but here's what I do know. If it's coming from God, it's going to be far more than I even know what to do with. I'm not even going to know what to do with all that God gives me because it's coming out of his divine wealth. Are you starting to see why Paul begins by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Because as he's thinking about these things, he's just overwhelmed. And it gets better. Moving from the past, Paul sweeps into the present. He's already talked about how God has predestined us to be holy and blameless, chosen us for adoption. And then Paul moves into the present to how God actually makes that happen. Look down at verse 7. Paul writes, In him, in Christ, we have, present tense, We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches 
of his grace. In eternity past, God determined that we would be united to Christ and that united to Christ, we'd be holy and blameless. But in order to make that a reality, God had to act. He had to take decisive action for us. How could God make sinful men and women his children? By sending his own son to become sin for us. In Christ, we have redemption. The word redemption throughout Scripture and really throughout the the Roman context that Paul was writing, redemption is a term of repayment of debt. And so in ancient Israel, if a man found himself unable to afford to live, unable to pay debt, he could, in a sense, sell himself into indentured servitude in order to pay down his debt. But his family if they could gather the resources, they could pay off his debt and redeem him out of that situation. And so redemption is about repayment of debt. And Paul, when he's writing this, he has a debt in mind, but it's something far more massive and crushing and unbearable than any debt that someone would have incurred in the Old Testament. Paul is thinking of the fact that God created us. God owns us. And by that very fact, by the fact that God created you and me and owns us, we owe him obedience. It's what we owe him. It's what is right for us to give to him. And when we don't obey God, we are failing to pay what we own him. It's like when you default on a payment. When we don't obey God, that is failing to give God what we owe him. And I certainly have not given God what I owe him. Have you? I haven't paid God the perfect obedience that I owe him. In fact, it's the opposite. Time and time again, I've sinned against God. Aggressively, intentionally, blatantly, I have sinned against God. And every sin, in a sense, it's adding to this mountain of debt that's accumulating on me, and I can't pay God back. There's no way I can get out from under this debt that I'm incurring. The debt of sin becomes so great, I can't pay it back. Except God had every right to demand repayment. It puts us in an impossible situation. In Romans 6.14, what's the wages of sin? It's death, spiritual, eternal death. That was going to be what happened if our debt wasn't paid. But because God is rich and overflowing in grace, he did the unthinkable. God did the unthinkable. He paid off the debt that we owed to him. He paid the debt that he was due. And it's important to understand, it's not like God just kind of like forgave the debt, like, ah, don't worry about it. You don't have to pay me back. This wasn't a dismissal of debt. The debt had to be paid because God is just and holy. He couldn't just say, ah, don't worry about it. No, the debt had to be paid, but only God could pay the debt. So how did he do that? Colossians 2, 13 through 14, it tells us exactly how he did it says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt 
that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. How did God cancel my debt? How did God cancel your debt? It was because Christ lived a sinless life. He gave God the obedience that he was due. And then on the cross, Christ paid the debt that was ours. God gave Christ the punishment that our debt deserved. And so now there is zero debt remaining. Zero. That's redemption. Zero debt. We have been completely redeemed. It's like God said, I love them so much, I'll pay it for them. I'm going to take the consequences for this debt. I'll accept the consequences for their actions. Do you ever doubt God's love for you? Do you ever doubt it? I do sometimes. I doubt God's love. I feel like I'm too sinful for God to love, too messed up, too impatient, too angry, you name it. But here's the good news. If you're like me and you struggle like that, you are right now, currently, presently, redeemed. Completely redeemed. God doesn't do installment payments with debts. When he pays a debt, it's completely paid. And so you are, I am completely redeemed, completely forgiven. And why would God do that? Only love could motivate God to do that. Only God's unfathomable love. And we tend to think of salvation, at least I do. Maybe you don't do this. Maybe you're way more godly than me. I tend to think of salvation in terms of like just a sort of me and God thing. Like, God, you've forgiven my payment. You've forgiven my debt. I'm so grateful. Thank you. And that's all good. But it's a lot bigger than that. Our salvation is so much bigger than just me and God and forgiveness. And thank you, Jesus. Look at verse 9. God saved us to be part of a grand sweeping plan he has to bring together all things in Christ. Verse 9, Paul says that God, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness, fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Sin, one of the primary effects of sin is it just fractures things. Sin rips things apart. Sin rips apart our relationship with God. It separates us from God. And sin separates us from each other, doesn't it? Sin causes fractures in our relationships with each other. And sin even causes a fracture between us and the world God created. When Adam sinned, God cursed the earth so that we would be, in many ways, at odds with creation. But the good news is that Our salvation, it's part of something much bigger where God, he's bringing back together everything that's been fractured and ripped apart by sin. The curse of sin is being reversed in Jesus Christ. And we're getting bits of it now. We see bits and pieces and tastes of it now in Christ. God has restored fellowship with us. We can come near to God. We said earlier that we can draw near to God with confidence. That's because God's uniting all things in Christ. God's bringing us back together. In Christ, God's restoring our relationships with one another. 
That's the only way a group of diverse people like this can come together and have fellowship with one another is if God does the bringing together. And finally, when Jesus returns, he's going to take this broken down, wearing out hulk of an earth that we live on, and he's going to make it new. And when he makes it new, there will be no more sin, Satan, sickness, death, disease, sadness, heartbreak. It's all going to be restored in Christ. It's so good. It's such good news. In the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's a children's book that every grown-up should mandatory read. It's written by C.S. Lewis. And in the book, the land, there's this land called Narnia. And Narnia is a magical land. There's creatures that talk to each other. And Narnia is ruled, when we enter the book, Narnia has been ruled for a hundred years by the White Witch. And under her tyrannical rule, it is always winter and never Christmas. But the creatures of Narnia, they held on to this prophecy about a lion who would come. And as you read the book, it becomes increasingly clear this lion is Jesus. This lion, his name is Aslan. He's going to come and he's going to make all things right. And here's what the prophecy said. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. When Jesus, who is called the Lion of Judah, when he returns, we're going to have spring again. It's good news. Right now, some of you probably came in this morning feeling like you are in the midst of winter. And not only is it never going to be spring, you're not even thinking it's going to be Christmas anytime soon. Maybe your health is failing. Maybe you can't get your head above water financially. Maybe your child has wandered away from Christ. Maybe there's broken relationships you can't fix. You feel like it's always winter. Take heart this morning and be encouraged. Be encouraged because wrong will be right when Jesus returns. When Jesus returns and he makes all things new and your sorrows and tears will be no more. That's our hope. This is what we hold on to. Just like the characters in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe held on to this prophecy, we hold on to this truth that Jesus is returning and he will make all things new. This is why, God, why Paul can't help but praise God. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. And there's one more thing. The last point that Paul makes is he goes into the future. He's talked about how we're blessed in the past, blessed in the present, and now we're blessed in eternity future. Look at 13 to 14. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 
Wouldn't it be enough if God just told us these things? I mean, that'd be enough, right? He's God. He tells us we believe it. His word is unbreakable. It's true. We can believe it. If he says it, it's going to happen. But God knows that we're easily shaken. He knows that we struggle with doubt. He knows we live in a sinful world where things get crazy and chaotic. And so he gives us a real, tangible guarantee and assurance that this is real. It's going to happen. That the future that is promised to us, that the inheritance that's promised, that it's actually guaranteed. And that guarantee is the Holy Spirit. When we believed in Christ, when you believed in Christ, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, came and dwelled in you. And the language Paul uses there is of being sealed with the Holy Spirit. When a king, what Paul has in mind is when a king would send a letter or a scroll, a wax seal would be placed on it, and then the king would stamp his ring into it. And that was proof that, yeah, this is from the king, this is real, this is true, and you can believe it. It's not a fake. The Holy Spirit dwelling in you and the Holy Spirit in me, it's God saying, it's true. The inheritance, it's real, it's coming. I'm uniting everything in Christ. It's all real, and it's all going to happen. And the question comes, well, how do you know if the Holy Spirit is within you? It's really not very complicated. Do you have any desire to follow God? Do you experience any conviction of sin? Do you see God working in any small ways in you to make you more loving, patient, kind, faithful, peaceful, joyful, self-controlled? Do you have a desire, even if it's just small, to be holy and more like Jesus? That's the Holy Spirit. That is the guarantee of what's to come. Because you can't make that up. You can't make that happen. You can't manufacture it. Later, Paul talks about how we're dead in our transgressions and sins. When we're dead in our sins, you can't manufacture that, th- that kind of change. Only the Holy Spirit can do it. So if you see even small evidences of it, good news. The Holy Spirit's in you. Your inheritance is guaranteed. Doesn't that encourage you? That encourages me because there's so many times when I just feel like, God, is it, is it all really going to happen? Yeah, it is. It is. And the spirit within is the promise and the guarantee. Our response to all of this that we've just covered, it's really simple. It's what Paul started with. Praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's just worship. That's our primary response here is worship and gratefulness and hope. Gratefulness that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing. Worship to God for his astounding goodness and mercy. Our God is so good. He's so generous, kind, loving, and gracious. Let's pray together. Let's thank God for these things, and then let's respond appropriately in line of this passage.